You're listening to The Photo Untaken, stories from outside the frame, with me, Alan Clark. As an artist, I look up to someone like Sig Harvey, because she comes from the old school way of being a photographer, in that she shoots and prints everything she does, no matter how long it takes. Even so, all of her work looks modern. She's been able to make the old world and the new come together in her work like no one else and it inspires countless others in the process the process of make see and listen as she puts it she is a phenomenal writer in addition to being a fabulous photographer and when you see her work there's never any doubt that she knows exactly what she wants to be when she grows up even if it's a person who never grows up you can see dreams in her photographs yours hers and things you may have read in a fairy tale once upon a time. I've often said, a true artist doesn't know another way. They just can't help themselves. And I'm okay if Sig never finds anything else and does this for the rest of her life because I want to see where this goes. Sig Harvey, thank you for being with us today on the Photo One Taken podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. As you're talking to us today on the podcast, where do you sit when you do these things? Do you have an office or do you have a little workspace that you do this from? Yes, I have a home office. It's sort of more of a computer area. It's a complete mess (laughs) and just filled with papers and books. And that's the way I work. I have to have sort of life interrupting art and work. And so I sort of might cook a long stew and come back and answer an email. I, you know, go out and scratch my dog and then come back in and work on finalizing an image. But when it comes to writing and laying out books, I have a space about 10 miles away that's in an old school. It's just a big old classroom covered with chalkboards that I painfully painted with magnetic paint a few years ago. And so that place is completely empty. So my home and the studio at home is is sort of a really lived in and, and a disaster. And then the one in Rockland is sort of minimal and empty, which is the way I, the writing side of my brain has to have everything empty. And the photography side of my brain has to have, you know, this onslaught of mess. Does that make sense? Yeah. One is chaos and one is not. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when I look at your photos, a lot of times I just kind of wonder how much you've affected and how much is just there. That's one of the things I always think of when I think of questions, you know, how did you build to this place? And for instance, in the photograph of your daughter, Scout, like in with the, what is that bird that was laying on the table? It's a cormorant. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a seabird. And they sometimes live on rivers too. And in Florida a lot, you've probably seen them where they they stand drying their wings fully open at dusk. It's sort of a sight to behold. Wow. And so they live in coastal areas primarily. And I think you said you were just driving around waiting for something to happen and and this happened. Yeah, you know, I've always had this back and forth, back and forth between constructing and finding pictures. I work in both of those ways because I feel like, I feel that it helps me make more pictures. If I only construct pictures, my world gets smaller and smaller, and then the images can become more expected, just feeling more forced. But then if I only go out in the world and find them, then I have a hard time making enough. So the two of them, sort of one expands the other. The two of them together in concert really seems to work for me. Hmm. Like for me, I'm thinking... That color on the wall behind her is amazing. And I'm like, who painted that? Yeah. Well, that's part of, you know, having a home studio slash office. That's the wall I'm looking at right now. And right now it's this strange pink color. So I will (laughs) paint and repaint the, the kitchen and the living room and, you know, my office area on a fairly regular basis just to sort of live amongst the pictures. So that green was up for maybe a couple of months and then it will change again. So it's to fit and serve you, basically. Yeah. And the look and the feel. And then, man, I would love to put that in front of this and that type of thing. Exactly. So I found the cormorant. I was driving around searching for a picture. It was almost like that scene from Monty Python where I was waiting for a field of stampeding wildebeest to, when I looked out the window. Have you seen that in Faulty Towers, that skit? <laughs> yes. um, yeah. And he's actually in a hotel in Torquay in southern England. So obviously there's not going to be wildebeest. So I was driving around trying to find 
something that stopped me in my tracks, something that made me gasp, which is an ingredient that I'm looking for in the pitches. So looking to expand my world. And I'm driving and it's Maine in March. It's muddy, it's brown, everything's beige. There's nothing that is standing out. And then suddenly this bird drops from the sky. So I take it as a sign, but it's not my usual vibe to go and pick up dead animals. It's really (laughs) not my scene, but I did. And then I brought it home because... I knew that there was a picture there and I was in my studio at home. I have a sort of aluminum table and I was photographing it. And then my daughter came in. She was probably three or four at the time. And she had a Dora the Explorer Band-Aid and she came over and I was standing above it, above the cormorant. And she just dropped this plaster, this Band-Aid on the bird's wing. And then did that sort of strange gesture Mm. where the picture that you're looking at and it was sort of this incredible moment of empathy and I asked her oh can you do that again and she said no and left and so that was the picture which I love (laughs) about you know photography you have these sort of moments one of my biggest passions with photography and it never ceases to amaze me is that we are talking about time with pictures you know inherently photographers are somehow trying to sort of slow down time, hold on to time. Time is our currency as photographers. And yet we deal with the tiniest increments, you know, it's a 250th of a second, 500th of a second, 1,000th of a second, 125th, these like minuscule amounts of time to shine a light on sort of time with a capital T, much bigger time, the business of being human. You know, there's that great line by, I think Cartier-Bresson was the first to talk about this. And then Ernesto Bazan added up all of the shutter speeds in his book. And it came to something like 3.4 seconds, which I love, you know, this entire lifetime. And it just comes down, boils down to these minuscule amounts of time. So for me, going back to your question, Alan, this idea of constructing and then finding, it really is a mashup of both for me. I rarely, sometimes I do get it when I'm just out in the world and it's one shot. And other times it sort of is this sort of bringing back the idea to the studio or going back out again and trying to figure out what is the best way to tell this story? You know, what's the best light? Light is our language, right? So what is the light that this story needs? Is it best that I go out at dawn or at dusk? Is it noon shot or at midnight? And I love that sort of grappling because what I'm trying to do is shine a light in many ways that the world is amazing and the world needs to be appreciated. So what are the tools that I have in order to do that? And there aren't that many in photography. I mean, really, if you boil it down to the tech nerds like to make it more complicated, but really it's just shutter speed and aperture. You know, essentially it comes down to that. So how long the shutter's open and how big the shutter is, how does it look? So these simple tools of light and metaphor and symbol, this is what we have to use. These are our scalpels. So I really sort of think about, well, what is it? that will tell this story in the most poetic or the punch to the stomach or the way to tell this story. What's the best light to use for this? What's the best color to have on the walls in this case when I'm sort of working through this one story? It's funny because I talk about Rassan all the time, basically because he just was so poetic in the way that he talked about time. And the thing about time with Rassan was that he was always talking about it, mainly just because we're always trying to keep it still for us, just for this moment. And I'm obsessed with time as well. When I look at your work, your work is quiet work. And I sometimes wonder how long it takes you. Like, how patient are you? Like, what's the record for you just sitting still waiting for that picture? You know, it's all across the board. So some images, like for example, Emmy in the truck with this exhaust coming, the little girl sitting waiting for her dad in the back of the truck. That was a picture. It was just there and I was lucky and I made it and there were maybe two or three frames. Other photographs like Devon in the Fireflies, that was a picture that haunted me for a couple of years. I kept going to this one space on the hill that looks over the ocean. And I either got there too late or too early. There were fireflies. Fireflies are really 
unreliable models. The wind has to be just right and the, the time of day and the season, you know, is only a certain time of year in Maine that we get them, primarily early summer, June. So I would go back there. I was sort of haunted by this place. I knew there was a picture there. So I would go back and, you know, the first year I went, the fireflies just like little buttercups didn't really work. I, you know, the exposure was wrong. And then I couldn't quite get the light on Devon. And I worked with a different friend initially. And then it sort of all came together maybe in the third June, third year, trying to make that picture where I took a little handheld flash, which is rare for me because most of my work is natural light. In fact, all of it, apart from that one image, where I threw a little bit of flash on her face because I wanted her to be illuminated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's across the board. I mean, there was also this scenario this year where I couldn't sleep. And I love that. I worked in the dark room when I was 13 years old and I'm now 46. So I've been making pictures all these years and it still keeps me up at night. I mean, what a life. How lucky am I that this is my life? And so I'm lying there in bed this summer and I just cannot sleep because two miles away from my house, I found this compost heap and it's a dahlia farm. So I went to the dahlia farm in the hope expanding my world, you know, the beautiful John Silgo line, Outside Lies Magic. So trying to find mm. something to photograph. And then I'm walking through this dahlia farm that's very sort of organized and everything's got a label on and it's it's sort of not this wild, fecund life that I'm looking for. It's too sort of organized. And then I look to my left and I see this compost heap. And it is a compost heap that you can't even imagine. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. I mean, it literally was a punch to the stomach, which is, you know, when I feel that, I know that that's, there's a picture there. And so this place haunted me for really the entire time until they basically pulled up all the dahlias because they're tubers, right? So they go underneath in the basement for the winter until I couldn't photograph there anymore because it, it was over. They had pulled them all up and it was over. So until that moment, I knew that this place was a place of magic. I actually could do an entire book with the amount I shot there this past summer, you know, because dahlias die from the back, so their fronts are sort of extraordinary and color so intense. And so they are deadheaded from the backs while they still in the front look extraordinary. So to have this field of compost that look, it's hauntingly beautiful. I mean, it sort of looks like a grave you wish you had, but yet it's a compost heap. <laughs> I love that about photography that it can seem one thing, but then lends itself to be a symbol for so many other things. It's interesting. I see it in other people's work sometimes, too. Not meaning other photographers, but people who take vacations sometimes. I was literally looking at images yesterday. A friend of mine showed me some images from his time in Maine. And I was talking to him about how magical places can be for photography. Yeah. And that those places can be so special. And you just have to literally just pull over and park and stay and don't leave and don't be in a hurry and don't, you know, go to the next thing on your walk or whatever. And he showed me this image of the seaweed that had gathered near the shore. And it was like hair. and It was so beautiful. Mm. And I said, did you take any photos of this? And he's like, no, I just did this video. And then I had a friend who recently went to Morocco and I'm just like, if they had known what to do, how to stop, how to stay. Yeah. I think that's what makes photographers special. It's so much more than the, like you said, the technique and the, equipment and all the things you get hung up on, but just having a decent camera with you can just make something different, make something amazing that you'll be able to keep forever. And I think that's what makes us special when it comes to visuals is just knowing sometimes the intuition of knowing to stop, you know, to stay and just to spend some time and love this thing, love this place. There's a couple of things you brought up there that sort of right up my street right now. This idea of intuition, I really would love to talk about. I mean, I feel like as a culture, we put so much emphasis on the mind, the intellect. Mm. It's sort of the highest point, the apogee is seen. You know, if you think about the accolades that come with the mind, yet what happens with the body, this idea of embodiment, you know, most artists, I find a terrible at talking about the work, myself included, because it's made from the body, right? It's like, you know, there is information, there is trauma, there is love, and it's stored in the body. And we struggle when we try then to assign words to that. And so that's when we end up with art speak and just, you know, all these words that actually we all understand, but together they're nonsense. So, you know, this idea of instinct, you know, and instinct being the original Google Maps or instinct being, you know, common sense. And just this idea to stay. 
A lot of my students will say to me, well, what's the best camera? And I'm like, the one that you have with you. So if you only have mm-hmm. an iPhone, then great, use it. But I always try and have a really good camera with me. I have a little small Sony that is always in my bag. It was a year old and it looked like it was 100 years old because it's just <laughs> always in there because it cannot be that I'm out in the world and I see something and I didn't have a camera with me. I mean, I feel like I've been put on this world to make pictures. Like I am in this for life. Me too. You know, and there's something really wonderful about that. And just knowing that sense of of knowing that this is why I'm here. I'm here to make pictures. I'm going to be in this. I'm in for the long haul. There's so many stories to tell. So, you know, to not have a camera with me, I mean, it really is sort of, it's against my manifesto. You know, I really feel (laughs) that's important. I mean, I might not take that camera to an official shoot or when I'm out, I'm out going to make pictures now, you know, I would take something bigger, but to always have something, because oftentimes I find the pictures I make when I'm just responding to the world, they might not be the one, but they're such a sketch for the way I'm thinking. Sometimes people ask me and they say, well, I've got to find my voice. What's my project? And the most wonderful thing, and then also the terrifying thing is that you don't need to find anything. It's already in you. All you need to do is make pictures every day and it comes out of you. You don't pick your projects. It's not like, you know, apple picking. And when you try and pick a project, after a couple of weeks, you're either bored with it or you're repeating yourself or it's really not your project. It's someone else's, you know, that maybe you're inspired by. So this idea of just making something every day and looking at what you've made, like this thing where you spend time with the failures, spend time looking at, well, what is it? Forget about making prints, but what was I drawn to in the world? Why was I drawn to that river or that road? And what's that about? Why? You know, all these sort of questions going deeper. Well, why was I drawn to that group of people? And why did I choose to frame it like that? You know, sort of looking at the instinctual stuff we just did and analyzing why that is and what comes from that and the projects that come from that. I think is just a really sort of fascinating way to live. And that's something that I really sort of urge on other photographers or my students to use the camera as this sort of this witness, as a note taker. Even if you don't do anything with those pictures, I promise you it will illuminate what you're concerned with in the world. And I don't necessarily mean concerned with, you know, like tears. I mean concerned with what do you care about? I mean, there's this idea that cameras are just expensive pencils. So what do you have to say? Yeah, You know, and, and when you say that to a group of people, they're like, holy shit, what? I don't know, you know, <laughs> but it is, it's exactly that. And that's why I can't stand it when it becomes too technical. It's exactly that. It's like, what have you got to say? What do you want to say with this camera? And it's already in you. It's just, you've got to work hard enough to get it out. think about this a lot because I think some of us struggle with this. We struggle so much with just giving ourselves permission. I think about, for instance, just getting a simple massage, you know, just getting something worked out in your system, you know, that's hurting or whatever. We look at that type of stuff as luxury. Yeah. And I think that that might be the case for this too, is that we look at spending time with ourselves, going out and shooting, especially as photographers. We don't give ourselves permission to do that because it's just a luxury that we think we can't afford. I think our mentality is all wrong. It's that we have to go do these things. We have to, because if not, we need permission and we need an assignment and you know, we'll go out, we'll literally go just do the bare minimum and come back. And it's, you have to give yourself permission. You have to go get lost. It's more about getting lost than it is about doing this one hour or this subject or nailing it and being finished, you know? And I think it's just so tough. Yeah. There's this great book. You probably read it, Alan, called Art and Fear. And I love it. It's a book I return to again and again because it's such common sense, but for some reason we get in the way of ourselves. So of course it's the last thing we do because we're a culture where we're all trying to produce something and make something. Art isn't a shopping list. So we write down our list of to-dos every day and go to the bank. Oh, we know how much time we can allow for that and answer emails. And and so then make art gets pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to the bottom because we, we don't know how long that will take and that it might not yield anything. And so it might be you spent the day that's not very productive. And, and so it ends up always at the bottom of everyone's list, even when they really care about it. Yeah. So that idea of just like moving it up, moving it up, to, you know, definitely before emails, you know, which can just suck all of your time. Yeah. Moving it up to the top of the list and just going out and see. It's showing up for the date, right? 
nobody ever regrets going out to make pictures because something is always found, I believe. Even if it's not the best yeah. picture in the world, no, I agree. something is found. It's like going to the gym. You never want to go. And yet when you go, the endorphins that are released, you feel good about the world or yourself or you feel better or something. So I feel like it's a similar thing where we have to just push it higher up to the list and realize that little bit each day makes a lot in a year. You know, Where in your path, Sig, did you start giving that more importance? Where in this place did you start making this decision? Did life kind of force you over to the side of the road or did you actually start going, you know what, I need an escape or I need this or something from it? When did that kind of start becoming true for you? I always knew that photography was my my medium. Yeah, I worked in dark rooms when I was in school, you know, 13, 14 years old every Saturday. And then I traveled, lived in Barcelona for a couple of years, lived in Bermuda for five or six years. I knew I was in the right place, but I didn't know what to do there. And then I moved to Maine in 99 and Maine Media Workshops. And for me, that that was sort of this perfect time in the sense that I was ready to just work. I didn't want to socialize. I, I basically did nothing but work for one year. I just made pictures every day. I just, I felt like it was this sort of this perfect moment of everything coming together where I wanted to devote every second of the day. I was single. I wanted to just work my ass off and that's what I did. And so it was in that time period when I was 26 and I came and I was first in, last out. I was ready to receive, you know, sometimes you hear information and you're not ready to understand it. And then a couple of years later, you're like, oh, well, I had that book, but I never, you know, read it or I didn't quite understand what was being said to me. I was at that point where I was so eager for knowledge and learning. I had waitressed a lot, saved up all my money for a master's. So I really gave myself this sort of luxury of a couple of years of just making and didn't try and shop the work. I didn't put it out there in the world. I just sort of nurtured it and made it and looked at it and thought about it and went back and made more and failed and went back and made more and looked at it and talked about it. And just this cycle, <laughs> what we can learn from our pictures I think is really important. I think it's the part of things, the side of photography that people do perhaps the least. Everyone's about the making, the taking of the pictures and then getting the one good image. Whereas I'm sort of fascinated with the failures too and what that Mm. can teach me. Just spending that time, you know, again, coming back to the list of just looking at something we know isn't going to be on anyone's wall or isn't going to make it anywhere, but what can it tell us? And so I think that for me is what I learned initially coming to Maine and has been part of my practice ever since for the last 20 years. Do you think it's dangerous to not know what isn't working? People always ask me, what's the most dangerous thing about being an artist? And I always say, just not being objective about yourself, Mm. not knowing, just getting married to something you shouldn't be married to, or maybe you're married to something and you can't tell if this is great versus good. Yeah. Is it just dangerous to not know what's just, this isn't working, you know, and I need to try something else or I need to keep pushing through this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where instinct comes back. You know, when something is not working. Also, I think it's important to have a group of people or a person that you can run ideas by, talk through, show pictures, because maybe those particular pictures aren't working, but the essential idea behind it is really interesting. The reason why you're drawn to that documentary group or that person or, you know, these flowers or whatever it is. It doesn't matter about subject Mm -hmm, matter. mm -hmm. I truly believe there's always a reason why you're drawn to something and it's figuring out that part. We might then take the easy way of making the pictures, which we need to, and that doesn't work. But I always find it interesting of why someone's drawn to something. And what I love to do is also look at the breadth of someone's work over a lifetime and think about how things are connected. You know, what are the threads between the different portfolios, the different books? There's always a reason. And I love to figure out that part that's the sort of Miss Marple in me of just figuring out well, why were you drawn to this particular project? And then that one, even though it might seem different. And I think if you find out those central themes in your work, for me, I think it can help make more work. Yeah, It sort of almost gives you a map so that when you come to making a new project and you're full of self-doubt, which is what you're talking about of, is it not working? Is it not good enough? Is it what's wrong here? You know, that sort of knowing a central theme. and, And also I write a lot. I try and write every single day 
more recently, those words have become sort of published alongside my pictures, but that wasn't the original intent. I wrote to figure out what was not working. I wrote to figure out what was working. I wrote to figure out, well, why am I even interested in this? I think if we can assign words, like genuine words, I don't mean art speak, but, you know, words from the gut. I think if we can assign words from the gut to our pictures, it helps us understand more. Yeah. Do you like seeing the words? Do you like seeing your words next to your work, near your work? Yes. (laughs) I think they do something really different from each other. There's the adage of they add up to more, hopefully, anyway, they add up to more than the sum of their parts. But photography was always my first love and true love and will always be there. But the words are really important to me. And I just had a show at a Gunkrit Museum in Southern Maine this past year. And it was the first time that I had elevated the words to the same level as the pictures. I mean, oftentimes you have vinyl lettering on the wall of a vignette or a poem or something. But this was, the words were letterpressed in this incredible blue and then framed in the same way as the photographs in white and I will never go back from that it was really important to me to see how complicated the stew of life and all of that came together when you saw the words and pictures alongside each other it also felt like a book on the wall which was really interesting to me Mm. I think about the words sometimes because sometimes I like to say nothing about a photograph. I like the photograph itself just sitting there looking at you. But to me, when you're putting things in your work or in a book or something like that, it seems like the words almost have the same relationship as sometimes when a piece of work that was shot at a different time is sitting next to another piece of work. And they sometimes go against each other or sometimes they go with each other. And I think the words can do that too. Yeah, I agree. I never or I think I've done it once, write to a photograph. It's more I write and make pictures. And then at the end, uh, you know, what I consider the end, the arbitrary end of, <laughs> you know, a book project, I sort of go into the empty room in Rockland and then say, okay, jigsaw puzzle, where does it all fit? I think the writing and the pictures for me are stronger when they don't necessarily address each other directly. Yeah. They can bring out something so much more. And I think often the impulse to write comes when we, we're stuck and we don't understand and we're sad or something has happened. But how would it be if you sort of connected with that writing when you felt joy or you felt an average Tuesday? This idea of sort of more of the discipline of art, I think is really interesting of what would come out then. And then seeing them all together, how it perhaps elevates the pictures or is a mirror of how complicated life is. I think that's what I'm sort of after in the sort of the union of those words and a photograph together. How did you even meet a camera? How did you even pick up a camera to begin with? You know, I talk about reading the Independent on Sunday or Saturday when I was a kid and seeing these photo essays, my first love was always documentary. Even though my work is not necessarily, you wouldn't say documentary when you look at it. In many ways it is. It's personal, but it's also political. I think photographs can be all of the things, but I digress. So I was drawn, you know, I wanted to make pictures about what needed to be changed in the world. So I sort of picked up a camera. I remember spending the first time I went out shooting. It was like, a friend of my dad's or something and basically he was a commercial photographer and we we went out it's like we covered every genre in two hours I remember it was one roll of film and it was like we did six frames of a uh, still life and then we went outside and I found some tires and then we went to another place and I went to a graveyard it was like I visited every cliche in photography in a one hour please tell me you visited train tracks please say me (laughs) tell me you did that you know I did you know I did (laughs) took two frames of each but I don't know I was just hooked then I often think the best things, the things we love in life the most, we teach ourselves. And so I think he perhaps opened a door, but I was already at the door, you know. I am grateful to him and for all the people along the way who sort of opened doors for us. We don't get there on our own, you know. But I really do believe that when you are single-minded, not narrow-minded, but single-minded and your approach to sort of how you want to live with a camera, I feel like you teach yourselves that you are your own best teacher in that sense. I think back to the people that I want to thank. And, you know, my mother was the one that was the catalyst for me. She was the one that <laughs> people always ask me like, well, how did you 
become a photographer and always say, you know, my mother was horrible at taking family photos. She just was. Mm. She was horrible. She was the one that put all of her mittens over the front of the lens. Yep. <laughs> Every finger. She even found extra fingers, but they would go over the lens. And that's how it was every time. And for, I can't tell you how many years it was just photos with fingers. in them. <laughs> we thought we had a bald uncle that lived with us. Nope. Just my mother's fingers. <laughs> and uh, it was just hilarious, you know, that she did this. And I think when I was a kid, I can remember being a kid and I was probably six or seven or eight or something like that. And we just kept making fun of her relentlessly for doing that tilting, cutting heads off. I don't think her eye ever made it to the guide ever, you know, or she could figure anything out. And so at some point she just handed the camera to me and said, okay, you, you do it, you know? <laughs> and I was just like, okay. And yeah. I said this in my you know, Instagram handle. If you look, it just says, you know, I just want to pick up the camera. It just made sense. Like I just held it in my hands and it just made sense. And yeah. I don't know if she knew what she was doing. I don't know if she knew she was a catalyst, but for some strange reason, these two forces joined together and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that they did. Yeah, that's a good story. I like that. Mums are always the best. Aren't they? It's just interesting how we remember and why we remember certain things and not others. And what was profound to us might have been just, you know, something that she was doing. She was too busy. She just, maybe she didn't care what's why her fingers were there. You know, I don't even, you know, it's just interesting of just yeah. how these things to one person are one thing and to another person, it's life-changing. It was. And for me, it was so funny how literal necessity is the mother of invention. It's like my mother was the mother mm -hmm. of invention for me, you know? Yeah. Of all the quotes that Rassan made about photography, the one that I love the most was when he says a camera, you know, it could be a machine gun. It can be a psychological couch. It can be a warm kiss. It can be a sketchbook. I love that part. I love that. A camera can be a couch, can be a warm kiss, can be a machine gun. I mean, what? <laughs> that's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary medium. I mean, I love it so much. I can't believe how lucky I am that I get to spend this life doing this and talking about it. And I love how clever photography is. It's how you take a picture of something and you think, oh, well, it's a picture of that. And <laughs> But really, it's so much more. And how all of the things that you care about and have gone through come out in these pictures. And mm. I still scratch my head over how wonderful that is of what photography and writing can teach us about ourselves going back to sort of being hardwired to the subconscious. You know, photography more than any other medium, we're tied to things, right? If you're a painter, you start with a blank canvas sometimes. Mm -hmm. Whereas as a writer, you can start with a blank page. Whereas photography, we take pictures, even though I talk about we're taking pictures about things, we're really taking pictures of things as well. You know, the subject matter. But the subject matter, the tree, the glass, the flower, the person, is actually not what the picture's about. You know, and so I love that sort of conundrum of the clash of those two things. Something that I've noticed about your work that I really love is just that you've started animating a lot of your photos. Those animated photographs, I've actually been working on them about 10 years. They were in R&D for a long time, you know, getting it right. I made lots of horrible ones. And it's interesting how the world of GIF has now happened since, which wasn't around when I started working on those where one element of the photograph is moving and the rest is still, mm -hmm. which I think now you can just do that with a set program. Have you tried some of the moving pictures in your exhibits? Yeah. What I did was I framed it, gave it the same treatment as the photographs. So they're a little bit thicker because obviously they have hardware and computers and things inside them. So it was trickery, right? It was a way to seduce people so that they would walk by and then something would be moving. Yet it was next to salon style hung next to a photograph that was still. So it made you like go back and re-question. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Then you just kind of turn around and you go back. Why I was interested in working that way really came back to the still picture and it came back to time. So those animated photographs, those animations extended time. They messed with time. They distorted the fact that one thing was moving, but the rest was still then made you question time. They were also sort of very hypnotic. They were seductive in a way. So this idea of seduction and time and this idea of thinking of time with a big capital T. Mm -hmm. And that's why it typically works better if the thing that is animated is something natural. That's what I've learned in all my sort of failures, rather than someone winking, for example. You know, that it's got to have this sort of timeless element. Like when you stare at the stars, you think about time. When you stare at the ocean, it brings you to think about something that's much bigger than you. For me, it's all about, well, what's in service of the idea? I definitely shot motion when I was photographing that compost this past summer. 
just because I wanted to see the way light moved on it. I wanted to see the way it would degrade. And so I'll use anything. And it's sort of same with words, making neon signs, I'm embroidered, all these different things, whatever is in service of the idea. Photography is such an enormous field that you have to be in it for life to really, you know, make your mark, to say, this is how I lived. This is me putting down my my mark of a life that was lived. And so I taught, for example, for many years, alternative process in at the university in Boston and here. And yet I haven't actually made a portfolio that is out there in the world with alternative process. I just haven't gotten to it yet. There's just so many things that I want to do that are in photography that I just haven't gotten to yet. So I'm interested in all of it, but always coming back to the bigger picture. I'm interested in time and I'm interested in fragility and relationships. Those are my central themes. Hmm. All of my new work is about the senses. Right now, the last couple of years, I've been really sort of pushing at the senses and how to make work about the senses in order to live more, feel more, touch more, taste more, you know, crossing over the senses, synesthesia. And I'm a maximalist. You should see my house. It's like full wall-to-ceiling salon style of work, of traded photographs, of bought paintings, of framed lists. So I'm a maximalist in terms of sight and taste and smell. And I, you know, I can't write unless I'm smelling something. There's people who don't like lilies. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know, but when it comes to sound, I'm this sort of minimalist. Hmm. But I've often thought about, well, could I make work about sound? Should I start collecting sound? That's something I'm interested in. I love it. So what was the photograph that kind of made you start down this path? I wish I had one point. I've thought about this question and I wish I had a better answer, but I feel like for me, it's much more of this accumulation, like a body of work. I I tend to not think in terms of single pictures. I think Mm -hmm. in much more of bodies of work. There's a portfolio I made in the late 90s, black and white, and I made self-portraits. People still think of me sometimes as making self-portraits, but I haven't made one in like 20 years. (laughs) And for me, that way of working was so important because A, I was in control. Before that, I was sort of came from the school of yeah, but like, yeah, but I couldn't because it was raining or yeah, but they didn't say, they said I couldn't do it. And yeah, but I couldn't get further back enough. And it was just this bunch of excuses. Mm. For me, that portfolio, which I entitled Tread Softly, was really liberating because I took complete responsibility and control for everything. I would work in these mind maps and brainstorm all the sort of form and formal concerns and form and content. In order to have a strong photograph, you want to have both form and content, right? If it's just form, it's sort of boring. There's no juice behind it. And if it's all content, then often you're not seducing people enough. You use the form to seduce people to the content, right? Or I don't know where to look. It doesn't have any structure. Right, exactly. So this idea of form and content. So I make these huge mind maps, and this is still the way I work now, of all the different ideas of form. So light, shutter speed, vantage point, motion, the tools of the camera, right? How do I formally make this picture? And then content-wise, what am I trying to say? And then how do I say that through metaphor and symbol? And if this idea was a bird, what type of bird would it be? And really sort of digging deep all around this subject matter. And that was the first time in the late 90s when I started working this way. And for me, that was completely liberating. That year or two time period changed who I was as a photographer. That's when I realized that the projects are all inside of you. And if you just work hard enough and make pictures every day, they'll come out. So that methodology of working and really looking at light. So I told the story, it was a story of betrayal, but I told it backwards. So it will use white on white the good zone system, white on white mm. to talk about sort of the recovery and then black on black where the highlights barely escaped off the page to talk about the actual betrayal. But I told the story backwards. The middle portfolios were more in the greys. It was a group of four that I then put mm. together at the end. So for me, that time period sort of really gave me my practice as an artist. Obviously now my life is different. I have a family, I have Scout, I have Doug. I'm not just this single woman in my 20s making like crazy every day. I have other responsibilities, but I always come back to that time period as being, that's where I learned how to speak. And that's how I learned how to step through the world with this. And so coming back, and I do have days like that, and how beautiful those days are, days in the studio where we just 
pour it all into our work. You know, the camera is the pencil. So that portfolio will always be incredibly important to me, more because it taught me how to live as an artist and have a practice rather than the pictures themselves. I would like make work all day and then run to the dark room to process them. I mean, I couldn't even stand it how to, you know, and I would just get these huge tanks. It was like roaring out of me what I was trying to say. And so it was a really beautiful time. It was also a miserable time. It came from a place of great sadness, of betrayal. I'd been in love with photography for years up until that point, but this is when it was really like, this is it. Because I realized that I could take something painful and make a beautiful photograph about it. Or I could take something I didn't understand that was complicated, that was just messy and make it somehow orderly. So beauty out of pain, order out of chaos. And I was like, this is the way I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to use photography to try and understand emotions. So tell me about the one that got away. Like maybe you didn't have your camera with you once, or maybe just something didn't turn out the way that you wanted. Is there something that got away from you or a shoot that got away from you? I mean, if you think about it, I should be out there right now, not even talking to you. They're getting away right now. I mean, seriously. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Get out there right now, Sig. All right. Sorry, guys. This has to end right now. But it's true. Outside lies magic, right? I mean, it's all happening all the time. I mean, you drive yourself nuts if you thought like that. But I really do think about that sometimes. Like right now, the light is breathtaking somewhere or right now someone staring at someone that is an extraordinary gesture and I'm sat in front of my computer writing an email you know what am I doing so that's why we just have to get out there in the world we have to pay attention paying attention that's our job as photographers and you wouldn't be able to function in the world if you were constantly like "Ah, I gotta be out there but I do have moments like that but it's more the small moments see my job I think of my job as using the camera as a way to elevate what needs to be appreciated. So I am less interested in making things in Photoshop. I love work that's like that, but it's not for me. So my job is to be out there in the world to be a witness to that moment. And so anytime that I am not doing that, I do feel like, oh, but there are definitely times when I cannot not be outside with my camera. And other times where I feel like the writing is more pulling me right now. So I tend to just be, you know, really intuitive with how I'm feeling when I get out there. And I always try and stop the car if the light's great and I'm seeing something. I try to never say, I'll come back later, the kiss of death. Right. Because it's never the same, is it? The light's always different. The world is different. It's changed. So I try and be really sort of ruthless in my practice of stopping and making the picture rather than putting it off and adding it to the list. Right. You know, it's funny you talk about fireflies. There have been times when I've seen the most fireflies I've ever seen in fields where it's like the stars, that many. Yeah. And then I thought, I'll see that again. Didn't have a camera with me at the time. And I just, well, I'll see that again. And then I saw it one other time. And I'm talking, this is a period of like 30 years, maybe even 40 years. And I still have never seen that many in a field or just for whatever reason. Yeah. And it just, again, reinforces the whole reason why you have to take your camera with you at all times. All the time. Yeah. I get your mentality. Like if I didn't have something with me at the time or I wasn't able to make a photograph, it wasn't supposed to happen. But I have a couple of photographs in my head that are burned in that I did not get. You know, I had it in the trunk or or something like that. Yeah, me too. I mean, who am I kidding? You know, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm like, oh God, yeah. Do you remember that night? A group of us went skinny dipping on the in the ocean <laughs> and it was incredible. It was one of those moments where you're like, I am alive. I love this. And there were phosphorescence in the ocean. It was something out of this world, you know, and it was the perfect photograph for me where it was real. It existed, but it looked like it didn't exist. You know, there was something about it that was like, how can that be real? Which is sort of the holy grail for me. I had a camera with me and they were all completely underexposed. And I just messed up. I just didn't get it. So I probably got thousands of these, you know, with the ones that got away. And I tried, I tried to sort of, you know, pull things up on the negative and it just, no, it was just, you know, the expression polishing a turd, right? It just wasn't (laughs) happening. I missed it, you know? And I just like, God. So yeah, that was night. And I've been back to photograph phosphorescence many times and it's never been that same moment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's okay. I lived it. I could write about it. Yeah. And keep trying, right? The idea of the natural world and being prepared. But I'll never forget that night, but I don't have a picture of it. I kind of wonder sometimes if that was just meant for you, you know, just for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm okay with that sometimes. 
sometimes that was just meant for your eyes and for nothing else, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but then are we really believing that? Or are we really like, oh, but it would be so much better if it wasn't just for me. So many people <laughs> would love this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell me about a story that's just too crazy to believe. Something on a shoot while you're traveling. Could even be just during the time that you were scheduled to shoot or the time you're location scouting or just looking around or something like that. Sometimes it's crazy. Like, what did that really happen kind of thing? I was in Russia, 2014, maybe. I was obsessed with the time with birds and the metaphor around birds and the symbolism of birds, this sort of secret language, but I love that in art, right? The secret language of art. I went to breakfast and I was with some mates. I was like, I need to make a picture of a bird today. And I had everyone in the room like draw a picture of a bird and I drew a bird on my hand. So I was bird obsessed and I got everyone involved in it. And then that was the day I went out and I made the goldfinch picture. Do you know that picture of mine, Alan? Absolutely. The bird flying away. Yeah. So we went to a park, a bunch of us there just making pictures. And I made that picture and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that, you know, I don't even know whether is that serendipity? Is that being prepared? Is that looking for something, you know, and just finding mm-hmm. it? Because it's the red car syndrome. You know, you're aware of what you're looking for. Yes. But I loved that. I typically know when I have a picture, something that's like, oh, I got it. It's sort of a feeling, this instinctual, guttural, in-the-body feeling when I made it. And I didn't realize I had that, you know, with the wings completely open in that sense. And I'm obviously not a wildlife photographer. I don't have long lenses. I'm one camera, one lens girl. When I saw that in the film, it was a surprise. That's my story. Is it good enough? I'm not sure. but it's Absolutely. <laughs> but you know what? That was one of the first questions I asked you was about that bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I just love, I love that photo so much. And people think it's often my hand, but it's actually a guy's hand. Uh, Harry, you can tell. <laughs> I think we're all glad that it's not your hand. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's a story that just seemed like serendipity or something's coming into alignment. And no one else saw birds like that. There were other people photographing there and no one else made a picture like that. I like to think of photography being linked to pixies and magic. You know, I Mm. do. And it just makes me, it makes me smile. You know, I love the darkroom for that reason. This idea, you expose a piece of paper, silver, you know, the chemistry of it, all very official. And then you put it into this tray of chemical of developer. And then slowly this magical image comes out. Photography and alchemy, photography and magic. I mean, it's linked to each other. Obviously, I know it's science, but I like to think of it more as magic. And so for me, that story of the bird that day fell into that category where I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. You know what I love about your work? It's almost as if you're the portal between reality and fantasy that's what i love about your work Mm. even though your things seem magical and fairy tale like it also has this quality of being real and it seems possible that's the thing that i love about your work that it does actually seem possible that fairy tales are possible well i mean i think that comes back to sort of the photoshop thing this idea that they are real i treat the digital dark room in the same way that i treated the wet dark room, you know, dodge and burn. Yes. Carla correct. Yes. But my job in the world is to like go and find it. So that is the point of my work that it is real. Mm -hmm. That was there. I got to go find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could have used a fake bird, but there's no point in that for me. Why would I do that? That's not interesting, you know, for me. Right. I think that that is the sort of reason why I make pictures. That's the thing. I think that's what identifies you differently than, than others is that these things are in the world that they are there. (laughs) You just have to go find them. Yeah. You have to go find them. You have to get up. What I wanted you to walk us through was just some of the things that we could do to practice loving photography, or at least going out and loving it, going out in the world and finding those things that we're talking about. Maybe we're not going to be just like you. Maybe we're not going to go and try to copy what you're doing, but we are going to go find these things for ourselves. So what type of things do we need to practice? What's the list of things for us to take with us? Do we make a sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) always is the answer to that always make a sandwich yeah 
I think it's really important that one starts writing, that you are in touch. You do a sort of a mind dump. You write and then you go out and respond to the world. And respond to the world. Don't respond to the world after you've done your emails and after you've done the list of chores when you're like knackered. Give art the best time. Figure out if you're are you a night owl or a morning person. Like figure out when are you at your most creative and then save that time for your making. And save like the after lunch, you know, slump, save that for responding to emails. And that's obviously it's a very important email. But so look at when you're at your most alive and when the light is happening. I think it's so important. If I go out at noon, I'm probably just going to be like driving around. Whereas if I go out first thing, there's going to be something that stops me in my tracks because light is amazing. So I think this combination of writing and going out, writing and going out, then your projects will come out. It's sort of the make, see, listen, make, see, listen, make, see, listen, you know? So you're spending date nights with the pictures, with what you've made. So you're understanding why you're making it because you've been writing a lot. So you understand where the two are connected and then get back out there and make. And so working in a project mode, I think is really empowering. And I think it helps you keep making work because you're constantly living with it. Whereas if you're just looking for a one-off picture, I feel like you make less. Whereas this idea of building this body of work, it's like a rich, rich feast of a meal as opposed to fast food. (laughs) So the best assignment is to work in project mode and try and make work where you live. Obviously, if you're completely uninspired by where you live, then I would say if you can make plans to move, you know, and (laughs) live where you're inspired would be amazing if that can happen. Obviously not possible for everyone, but to live where you're inspired or to make work on a daily basis. If we only make work when we travel, then we're not making enough. And we're obviously oftentimes being the sort of, it's the other, it's the outsider, which is typically less interesting, I think. So this idea of having a project and identifying what that project is You can't pick it. You have to go out and make, you have to go out with your camera and then wherever you end up, when you come back with those pictures, you're going to then analyze, well, why did I end up there? What is it about that place or that person that I loved? And then write about that and then go back out there the next day to that place and see what you can see. And so you're sort of gathering this material. It's the best thing to know that your projects are inside of you. You just need to give it the time and make the pictures and spend the time sort of decide, was it a machine gun? Was it a warm kiss? Was, what was the other one? Psychoanalytical couch right. is what he said. And a sketchbook. He also says sketchbook. I love that. Right. It's exactly that. And realizing that most of the pictures that you make are sketches rather than the final piece. But there's value in that sketch, I think is so important to think about. So those are the things that I would sort of urge people to do. Often if you are only going out on a Saturday afternoon once a week and you don't spend any of the analysis time, the date night, looking at your pictures, getting off the computer, put them on the wall, you know, living with them. Mm-hmm. You don't spend that time. You often can just keep going back to the same place and not realizing why you're going back there and like making the same picture and not moving forward or deeper in any way. So I think the make, see, listen part Each aspect of that is so important for growing the work. That's what I would suggest. I love that. As teachers, like both of us are, where we teach or we coach, like I coach people through things and they're in workshops and things like that. I give people assignments. Yeah. And I think the biggest question that comes back from people who just can't figure out what their style is. I love this because this just says, go make the images. The style will reveal itself over time. It 100% does. I 100% believe in that. That's some of the best advice I've ever heard for even me. I get so locked into, well, should I be subject oriented? Should I go back through my 27 years of photography and just start finding a show in there or a book in there? And and I just think, think, overthink, think, think, think. And I don't even think about just going out and taking photographs. That's it. Just making, like you said. But then, you know, looking at what you made and then seeing how it relates to what you made 15 years ago. And I promise you, your central theme, it will be related. There will be a thread that will connect them. And then maybe that is the book. So it's not that we shouldn't look back on our past work. I think that's really important. But know that the answer is always get out there and make pictures. And oftentimes I think it's the last thing we want to hear. You know, <laughs> yep. you're like, oh, no, I prefer to do anything than that because it's hard. It's exhausting in some ways. Well, it's luxury. Again, we think of it as a luxury and I just don't think it is. Right, exactly. Is art essential or or is it a luxury? And that's why I think it's so important that we hear from as many different voices as possible. Because 
art shouldn't be a luxury and it shouldn't just be the ones that get to talk about it are the ones that have more of a luxury. I think it's so important. I was looking at some work with a student of mine, Anne Sabot, had made, and she has a son with cerebral palsy. And the work is so powerful. It isn't documentary. It's fine art. It's sort of reinterpretation. And I was like, I haven't seen much work by women mothers who are sort of the caregivers. And it's because they're too busy caregiving. We're not hearing their voices because art is seen as a luxury. It's so important, I think, what you're doing with this podcast to hear from different genders, different race, different economic groups. So we can hear art isn't a luxury. Art is fundamental to the act of living and so important. And it represents everyone. That's one of the things that I'm just disappointed a little bit in is that if you look at the photographers that are out there, it's just a lot of white men. Yeah. And hey, I'm really happy with the photographs these guys are turning out. I'm one too, but there's just not enough women in photography and there's not enough versatility and ethnic groups and things like that. Right. Michael Greco and I talked a lot about the barrier wall. It's the way for people to get in. Back a long time ago, we had to actually be skilled at exposing images. It was just much harder a long time ago. Mm -hmm. The barrier was a little higher because we had to be so skilled at what we did. Yes, that's true. At the same time, now that the barrier is lower, there's some people that might not have gotten in there before that are in there. And I just love that idea. That's something that happened because of this podcast. And so that's something I'm interested in. I'm interested in people that don't feel like they should belong, but are here anyway. And I'm excited to see this grow and change and to be more representative of who we are. Right. Because there's so many different perspectives, so many things to learn from each other. If you're only hearing from one group, then we're missing out. You know, life is rich and It's difficult and wonderful being human. And so this idea of learning from each other and shared experiences, and you're only going to get that if you have a wide group of people that you're asking questions. You know, one of the things that drives me mad is that Sig Harvey books just aren't available. They're sold out. Mm. I've looked everywhere. I can't find one. And if they are available, they're usually, what, like two or three times what they originally were. Which, uh, yeah, which is silly. That's not a bad thing. Just limited work. That's why it's so cool. That's what makes you special. Oh, well, thanks. But I hate that they're so expensive now. I just feel like they should be, you know, 50 bucks or 45, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I don't see any of the extra money because obviously it's sold on the secondary market. But what I love about books is that they're not a print on the wall. They are to be carried and available in libraries and things like that. So then more democratic. But I do love, I do love books. I have a deep love of books. So to see my work in books is really, for me, an ideal situation. I love the wall too, but (laughs) the books is something very special. Absolutely. When's your next one coming out? Well, I'm hard at work right now on this book about the senses. I think it's my best one yet. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm really on fire. Like I have been making and I haven't really released any of it. It's not on my site or anything. I just feel so grateful that I'm so inspired right now. So I'm really making both writing and photographing. Typically, I sort of go through periods where I don't do both at the same time. I've just come out of a really intense writing period Mm. and looking forward to the spring here where I will go into it nut job, crazy (laughs) photographing time. I would imagine it will come out early next year. I'm not done yet. That's cool. That's good to know. We're all patiently waiting, but excited. (laughs) I kept like three of each of them back, but I have a few damaged ones if you want one. Uh, a dink corner, Sig Harvey, is better than no <laughs> Sig Harvey. Perfect. Okay. Often <laughs> I'm at book signings and someone will say, oh, my name's Carol and I'll spell it with two L's or something, with, you know, and I'm like, fuck, and now I'm looking for a two L Carol in the world, you know, so you can have one of those. I'll just cross it out. <laughs> well, I cannot thank you enough for being on this podcast. Oh, I've loved talking with you, Alan. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's Marcus DePaula, producer of the Photo Untaken, Stories from Outside the Frame. Alan and I hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation with Sig Harvey. We really appreciate her sharing her make, see, listen process. You can see some of the images they talked about in the show notes for this episode at thephotountaken.com slash four. And you can see a lot more of her work on Sig's website, sigharvey.com. That's C-I-G-H-A-R-V-E-Y dot com. Besides having photos featured recently in the New York Times, you should also check out Sig's new book, 
which is a part of Reveal, a Yaffe Press triptych. Links for both of those are also in the show notes. And last thing, I also wanted to tell you about an upcoming online lecture series fundraiser for coronavirus-related charities that Alan will be presenting for. It's organized by his friend George Nobechi of Nobechi Creative. This lecture series called Evening with the Masters is actually just sold out, but you can go to the website to sign up to be notified when George will be putting on another online lecture series like this one. And you can also learn about his incredible photography workshops that he puts on. Check it all out at nobechicreative.com, which we'll also link to in this episode's show notes. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of the Photo Untaken Stories from Outside the Frame. <laughs>